0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Robert Diab, host of the Law Channel, and today I'm pleased to welcome Ryan Alford. Ryan is a professor in the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University and the author of Permanent State of Emergency, Unchecked Executive Power and the Demise of the Rule of Law, published in twenty seventeen by McGill Queens University Press. So welcome, Ryan, to the New Books Podcast. And um, why don't we begin with you telling us a bit about your background?
1: Thank you very much, Robert. So I was raised in Ottawa. And the time that I was growing up, everything seemed to be going well in the world. There was this wonderful glow uh, around the Clinton election, the demise of the Soviet Union. It just seemed like we were heading towards a beautiful era of peace. Uh, I remember George Bush Sr.'s speech about the thousand points of light and how we were ushering in a new era of global cooperation. And uh, what happened in 2001 was uh, not even on the horizon. So uh, when that happened, I was actually living in the United States. I was doing a PhD program. I had gone from undergrad to graduate school in the Netherlands to the PhD program at the University of New Mexico because of my interest in linguistics. And strangely enough, um, it was a very political program. What we were talking about for the most part was what they called critical discourse analysis. So, a bunch of interesting authors I've been exposed to in undergrad at Carleton were talking about how there was a rhetoric around certain critical social issues. And the way that issues were being presented, particularly in the media, were being crafted and uh, aligned to create a certain viewpoint or to further a certain ideology. And, when the 9-11 attacks happened, and I saw the rhetoric coming out in the United States, I was, I was absolutely shocked. I had seen a side of America that I hadn't seen. So um, my, the, my the professor, my supervisor, in my PhD program said, well, you know, keep calm and carry on. Let's have a seminar at my home tonight. And many of the people that I was very friendly with were either in tears, shocked, saying things like "Well, things will never be the same," or advocating, you know, um, military force against whoever did this, whoever sponsored this, in the most stark terms. So uh, I just was really shocked by the level of response. As I had lived in the Netherlands, um, all kinds of shocking events had happened. I remember the assassination of the politician Pim Fortuyn by um, a Salafist extremist in the Netherlands and the response was really nothing like that. Um, People in the United Kingdom had lived through the um, IRA terror campaign in the 1980s which was quite substantial Uh, and yet I hadn't heard comments from them about what should be done that paralleled what I was hearing Americans say about 9-11. Most of my work in graduate school had been about rhetoric and discourse in the legal sphere and I had thought to myself, I don't want to be another armchair academic who analyzes legal discourse without having a real insider perspective on law. So while I was ABD in my PhD program, I went to law school, which um, some people thought was a bit excessive. But I thought, well, I really do need to be a, somebody who really understands the technicalities that sort of surround this discourse that I'm investigating. And while I was in law school, it became apparent to me that. Um, My skills might be needed within the legal profession. So while I never really lost that theoretical orientation to looking at uh, the discourse of law and being skeptical about what people were saying and how they were framing uh, their discussions around law, I thought, well, I've I've actually got to take the the possibility of achieving social change through law a little bit more seriously because what was happening was really shocking. So, for instance, when I was at law school uh, beginning in 2002, They were setting up the Guantanamo Bay detention camps. George Bush seemed to be um, breaking all of the boundaries. And there was tremendous uh, shock at how every sort of achievement of the American constitutional order was being dismantled at that time. All kinds of really prominent people, um, Larry Tribe being one of them, uh, Erwin Chevorinsky, other leading constitutional scholars in the United States, were very critical the Bush administration and uh, I went through law school I decided that I wanted to be a law professor to discuss some of these issues I thought well I'll bring my linguistic skills to bear on this as well I went and I clerked uh, for two judges very um, influential experience for me I worked with Robert L. Carter who was actually Thurgood Marshall's deputy at the NAACP around the time of Brown versus Board of Education. So Robert L. Carter had been somebody who had really championed the rights of African-Americans for decades, and he was also quite shocked to see the direction that America was setting. I then worked for uh, Rosemary Pooler on the Second Circuit, who in the Second Circuit and Judge Pooler handled a number of really critical cases, um, including cases brought by Canadians who had been swept up in the dragnet um, of 9-11 and America's response to it. So, in fact, one prominent Canadian victim of this had been taken to Syria, in fact, to be tortured. And uh, it was unclear uh, how much the Canadian authorities cooperated in that. Uh, I was getting an insider perspective on quite a lot of these things. I looked on a case called uh, Abdullahi and another case, um, Higazi, where an American on a material witness warrant was treated terribly well in custody by the FBI. The Federal Bureau of Investigation said that if you don't cooperate with us, we'll torture your relatives or we'll have your relatives tortured by the Egyptian secret police. And this is someone who was later found to be factually innocent, who was just sort of swept up in all this around 9 11. That went into legal practice at the time when people in leading American firms were representing Guantanamo Bay detainees. And I think we've forgotten how controversial that was at the time. The Neil Gorsuch, uh, Gorsuch confirmation, um, the emails that were released as part of his disclosure to the Senate, showed that he was involved in running a smear campaign against the law firms, saying that, well, we should, we should let their clients know that this is what these law firms do. They send their attorneys down to Guantanamo Bay to represent these terrorists. And again, many people found factually innocent. No no charges ever brought against them, as is the case with the vast majority of the Guantanamo Bay detainees. Uh I then uh entered into this profession. I became a law professor in the United States. And then as I was writing this book, um, which was actually also my, my doctoral dissertation initially at the University of South Africa, I wrote it under the supervision of the chair rapporteur to the United Nations for um involuntary disappearances. And uh, someone who was very well versed what was going on with not only Guantanamo Bay, but the black sites, et cetera. And I learned that the perspective on these issues was so different outside of the United States. And also that the boundaries of the discourse, uh, the boundaries about what you could speak about in relation to the war on terror and national security issues was very, very different inside the United States than what was outside of it, particularly during the Obama administration. It was really quite shocking and disturbing to me to see Obama continue all of these policies at the very best, trimming them back at their edges, at the worst, expanding them. So the drone strike program, for instance, was expanded 500% during the Obama administration. It also saw the first targeted killing of a U.S. citizen in 2014 and a secret memo that provided the legal rationale for that targeted killing, kept secret for years until the ACLU finally prevailed in the Second Circuit. Uh, And the justices there, one of them being Rosemary Pooler, the the judge for whom I work, writing that this couldn't be held secret any longer, that it had to be released. Uh, And there's no rationale for holding a legal rationale to be uh, a secret document. Uh, It was really quite disturbing to see the legal profession's criticism of the Obama administration fall away. So and so I'm, that motivated my work for the most part.
0: Yes, yes, thank you. Well, so you open the book in a in a very uh, compelling way. You 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 begin with uh, a kind of anecdote about um, uh, legal developments that uh, that drew you in, that that um, compelled you to want to write the book, and um, that the story that you tell at the beginning um, helps the reader understand uh, kind of the connection between. Uh, post 9-11 measures and uh, executive powers and the rule of law in a, uh, in a very effective way. Do you want to just um, re- recount that uh, that story?
1: I'd love to. I was contacted essentially out of the blue by attorneys from the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights who had read a law review article that I would written in which I was very critical of the targeted killing program. And they, understood this jurisprudence better than I will ever understand it but there was one aspect of it that they thought that I could help with they asked me they said is there any rationale for making an argument that this violates what's called the constitution's bill of Attainder clause and I said I, I think so and the reason why they needed to contact an academic or a practicing lawyer is because in the entire history of the United States of America there's never been a bill of detainment in the strictest sense. So at the time when America became a republic and won its independence from the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom still had a procedure for a Parliament to pass a bill to become a law that would justify the execution of sin. And the last time that was done uh, was actually after the American Revolution um, with people involved in what was called the Young Ireland Rebellion of 1798. But the American revolutionaries, who were potential targets of these bills, abhorred the practice. And they said, well, it would be really problematic for a legislature to operate like a court. They had a very strong belief in the separation of powers. And so no one had ever been subjected to a bill from Congress saying you can be executed. But of course, that's exactly what happened with this case that I was involved in. So the reason why they were asking my advice, it wasn't just general, it was, specifically with respect to a case that had been brought by an American citizen who was challenging being included on this uh, kill list uh, and the fact that he had been designated for targeted killing by the President of the United States. This was the first time that an American citizen had been put on that list. Was during the Obama administration. And he had contacted lawyers uh, through his father. And his father had said, can we challenge this? And the reason why they asked me, um, they said, well, can we say this is a bill of attainder? And I said, absolutely yes. Um, the response of the court was very unsatisfying. So they had two responses in the two lawsuits one that was pre execution and the one that was post extrajudicial execution. The, the pre execution version was, well, you can't actually call this a bill of attainder because the president is doing it. So whereas the Constitution says Congress can't do this, the President can. And for a legal historian, somebody with the background that I had um, from my postgraduate training at Oxford University, um, my work there had been on Star Chamber, which is the court which was used to do end runs around the common law at a very interesting point uh, in the constitutional development of the United Kingdom. The, um, the idea that, well, Legislature can't do it, but the executive can. Um, well, for 500 years before the American Revolution, there was a document called Magna Carta, and it explicitly excluded exactly this. Um, if you translate the Latin, it's, you know, you put that in colloquial terms. We will not send someone, The, the king will not send assassins to kill you, which is exactly what President Obama was doing. And for an American court to say, well, the Bill of the Tanger clause, which was enacted to close this loophole, that Parliament still had the ability to do this, even if the king didn't. So, for instance, Henry VIII um, never attempted to do this on his own seal. He always got his allies in Parliament to introduce these acts to target his personal enemies. So, the, the, saying that what the the constitutional provision that closes this loophole actually doesn't doesn't even address what had been addressed through 500 years of constitutional development in the United Kingdom to prevent executive misconduct, it just betrayed this shocking historical ignorance and this shocking failure to attend to the notion of the rule of law, which is to say that there are baseline provisions that prevent this sort of thing that are so fundamental that they're not really the subject of written constitutional safeguards, that there there never will be um, a cons- an enacted written constitution that could ever explicitly detail all the ways in which the most powerful political actor could go around the terms of the explicit written constitutional provisions.
0: So, Ryan, this then leads you, um, this is uh, kind of the most uh, conspicuous example of a deeper shift in executive power taking place in the United States, and this forms the basis for a broader argument that you're making about executive power in the United States and its status as a rule of law nation. Do you want to, you want to explain your, your broader argument in the book?
1: Absolutely. So, I'm looking at this constitutional crisis in the United States, which was signaled to me not merely by the targeted killing of an American citizen, but by the existence of a torture camp at Guantanamo Bay and the use of Guantanamo Bay and CIA black sites for indefinite arbitrary detention. All of which are non-derogable human the rights. They're rights that can never be abrogated even in an emergency. Looking at that, I said that the, the the paradigm that we normally use to address that kind of problem, which is constitutional crisis, is really insufficient. We need um, a better yardstick to say whether or not the United States is operating within the norms of constitutional governance at all. So if we reached a state where the president can effectively just say, well, you we only have rights insofar as I treat you as if you have rights. Maybe the right yardstick is the rule of law. So the argument that I put together in the book is that it's possible to create a minimum standard of the rule of law. And no one's ever done this before because no one ever thought it would be possible for a rule of law state, particularly one with a separation of powers like the United States, to degenerate to the point where it falls outside of that paradigm of constitutional governance. So I said, well, how can we identify the minimum requirements And then if we use this to judge the United States, does it in fact measure up to the minimum norms of the rule of law state? And unfortunately it doesn't. Uh, What I argued in the book was, well, if you take the non-deragable rights and you say that the president, the most powerful political actor, the one who was most carefully restrained by the constitution of the United States in the separation of powers can just say, well, I think I need to operate in the interest of national security and override these rights at will. And when he does that, he's not subject to being either um, scrutinized or overruled by the other two branches of government. So if Congress routinely steps out of the way, if the courts routinely step out of the way, if they either explicitly or implicitly recognize the truth of this argument, or the validity of this argument—that the president, when he does it, it's simply not illegal—we have stepped outside of the paradigm of constitutional crisis and actually even stepped outside of the rule of law itself.
0: So, Ryan, um, at, in the uh, introduction to the book, um, you note that uh, this is this is sort of a field that's been; uh, these are issues that have been the focus of a number of different authors, journalistic and academic and you helpfully distinguish your approach from uh from a number of them um just to pick out a couple of them you uh you distinguish your argument from um uh from Bruce Ackerman uh and uh, so Bruce Ackerman is a Yale professor who wrote a book in 2010 called the decline and fall of the American republic and and was uh was sensitive uh, about the um you know the kind of a gradual accumulation of, of uh, authority in the hands of the executive. Michael Glennon wrote a book, I think in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, called National Security and Double Government, making um, a parallel set of arguments. You also distinguish your your um, thesis from that of Georgia Agamben uh, in The State of Exception. Do you want to speak briefly about that? I'd love to. Uh, I'd
1: actually like say that all those books are really exceptional books. And I hardly recommend them to anyone who's interested in these issues. I guess my, my principal orientation is constitutionalist in the sense that I have an unabashedly positive view of the development of the constitutional safeguards that I think have been eroded in the context of the war on terror. And the way that distinguishes me from Agamben and Glennon in particular is that I think their lens is primarily political and i certainly wouldn't want to duplicate what they do which is incredibly important in terms of talking about the political dysfunction that has helped to make this possible although i do touch a bit on that and i'm sure we'll discuss that when we talk about chapter six in my book but insofar as my lens is legal what i'm trying to say is if i merely used the internal perspective of the legal system can i show that america is actually not in keeping with its constitutional order and even the preconditions of its constitutional order. And I think that Agamben is somebody who's a lot more skeptical about the, the, the validity and the utility of those sorts of standards. So um, it's, it's easier for me to distinguish my work from Agamben's from actually anyone else, because if, if you believe as Agamben does, that the dark heart of the legal system, it is a an exception. If you take at face value the idea that the sovereign will always have this kind of override power, essentially what you reduce constitutionalism, uh, the movement that sort of has created over the centuries, these rights and these safeguards, you say, well, that's just candy coating the essential reality. The problem, I I once read a really interesting article by an Australian legal scholar who used this analogy uh, of, of Peter Pan and the fairy dust. And constitutionalism, if you believe in it, if you believe that it has value and that it's worth fighting for, it will have traction. If you believe that, well, really, fundamentally, all law is just politics and that we're fooling ourselves if we think otherwise, there's really no way, there's no place to stand to criticize the, the, the disintegration of the constitutional order. Because at that point, you've just said, well, all that these politicians are doing is they're making the system more honest. I really do think that we can point to a legal tradition that has created durable rights that are actually valuable. And I think that those rights are incredibly popular with the public. And if we take the stance and say, well, those rights were never really rights in the first place. They were always illusory. I don't think we have a very good basis for rallying the public. So I don't really understand how you could use Adam Ben's work, for instance, to be the focus of resistance to the change to the constitutional order. Although I, I would want to discount the possibility that that is possible. Um, it's just, it's very, it's, it's, a, it's a perspective that's hard for me to grapple with. I think once you've crossed that kind of epistemic divide, you have to formulate an entirely new politics. At that stage, you are explicitly revolutionary. And you're essentially making the path by walking. And as a lawyer, I've always been a bit uncomfortable with that. I feel like the validity or the value of what we do comes from saying to people, there are these standards. We can hold the government accountable against these standards. And whether or not that's naive or not, well, it's, it's essentially what we do as part of the constitutionalist project
0: and then um, also by contrast to Ackerman you um, just just focusing uh, in particular on on the expansion of, exec- of executive power in the last two you know two generations say you are less uh, sanguine about the prospects for reform
1: absolutely and um it's one of those situations where uh i've never been sadder to say i told you so um the trump administration i think during the presidential campaign no one believed that the election of Donald Trump would be possible. But if you look back at the political tone of the last 16 years, where the presidents, not only President Bush, but President Obama, and I think that Ackerman, I, I think, has occasionally wanted to avert his gaze from the most problematic elements of the Obama presidency. When President Obama stood up to announce the extrajudicial assassination of Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, which was an act of war, committed on the sovereign territory of a nuclear state. And the response was just completely uncritical. That if you said, well, there's some problems here, I don't don't know if the president should effectively be campaigning for re-election, which he did, on the basis that he made the executive decision to kill someone uh, without presenting any kind of rationale for why, in fact, it wasn't a capture operation why no attempt was made, and I think this has been confirmed by the stories that have come out subsequently, to capture someone whose intelligence would be absolutely invaluable, to put them on trial, to reassert the end of that exceptional paradigm and a return to the norms of the legal order was passed over without any kind of criticism or complaint from America's legal establishment, particularly from the academy. It just seemed absolutely shocking to me Particularly in retrospect, when you say, well, look at the appetite there was in the American public for someone just to stand up and say, I am the person who gets things done. I am uh, going to do whatever it takes without concern for, um, for legality, without concern for any of these uh, fripperies." And I would also point in particular to when the whistleblower um, Private Manning was arrested, that, that President Obama stood up in public and vouched for the guilt of someone who was in his line of authority, someone who was going to be tried in a military courtroom by people with a direct reporting line to him. The criticism was extremely muted. And this kind of actions by the president, who just sort of stands up and says, I am the authority. I can opine as to the guilt of someone. I can opine as to whether or not someone should live or die. It just seemed that the American public was learning that lesson. And uh, unfortunately, when the political valency shifted, it caught a lot of people um, by surprise, but that, that, that appeal of the strongman was just sitting there waiting for someone um, like Donald Trump to come in and take advantage of, unfortunately.
0: So Ryan, one, one of the things that distinguishes your approach from the literature in this area is that you um, go back to Watergate, you go back to the Nixon administration, and um look closely at uh, that moment in american history um and um you you suggest that um sort of a number of important steps in the direction of the expansion of executive power were taken at that time so so in distinction to to a lot of the literature that's a really important precedent for you um so so c- contrary to what uh, many people argue today um, uh, 9/11 was of course important and uh, was uh, was an important condition for the expansion of power uh, after 2001. But uh, but but that expansion has to be seen in the context of a modern development that that uh, that includes the Nixon administration. So if you can tell us a bit about you know what are what are the important features of that uh, development that that you um, focus on that would be interesting. But also the response on the part of the courts in Congress at that time and how, it's, how it was different post
1: 9-11? So that's a great question. Uh, people ask me frequently um, about impeachment, uh, and they use this analog of Watergate to what's going on right now in the Trump administration. And it's a very telling comparison, um, and it allows us to really get at the heart of the problems with the executive power in the 20th century and the 21st century. So one way into this is to talk about how Trump has realized President Nixon's wildest dreams. So if uh, I can point to a fantastic work of scholarship, the new imperial presidency by Andrew Rudalevich, he discusses how Nixon had a clear plan to sideline Congress and the courts. He wanted to be immune from rebuke, and he wanted to have the impunity to act as he would have liked in a way that he did not achieve, thanks to Watergate. Uh, but which Trump enjoys now, um, given the developments post-9-11. You see, more than anything, how war is the driver of this when you use Nixon as the comparator. That when someone is waging an unpopular war, they need to use all kinds of measures both to prosecute that war abroad, so for instance, to invade the neutrality of uh, of third-party countries, to commit war crimes, etc. Because when the gloves come off, that's what people like to do. Um, and also to repress uh, the anti-war movement at home. So that catalyzed quite a lot of Nixon's unconstitutional. We usually point to the white break-in, and some people scratch their heads and say, well, why did Nixon act in such a counterproductive manner? Why was he, was it just his paranoia run amok? And that's really not true. It's really important to understand context. We're talking about uh, a time in which the anti-war movement had received an enormous shot in the arm after the revelations of the secret bombing of Cambodia and then later the open invasion of Cambodia and how um, that protest movement had led to incredible repression, for instance, the Kent State shootings, etc. So the president was under intense pressure from the anti-war movement and the only way that he thought he could deal with all of the domestic pressure was to become uh, an elected dictator and to sideline Congress and the courts. And so, um, what you see with Watergate and what I point to you now frequently is that impeachment's not enough. It, it was a great, um, uh, moment in the restoration of the rule of law in the United States to, uh, to force Nixon to resign the run of impeachment. But you don't forget it brings to power the vice president. In, in Nixon's case, it brought someone that Nixon had chosen with kind of the scenario in mind whose first act was to pardon Nixon for any crimes he may or may not have committed. But Congress didn't stop there. It passed a, a comprehensive package of legislative reforms that rolled back all of these tokens and badges of the imperial presidency. And one of the most important was to restore clear and effective oversight over America's intelligence community. And unfortunately, we're not seeing a movement for that right now. We're seeing uh, something very different where we point to Trump's sins, but we don't talk about how they're other than personal. We don't talk about how replacing him with someone, presumably Vice President Pence would really just create the same problem again. So I think that understanding how Congress reasserted itself is integral. Another key part of that was that the courts were clearly on side with Congress. So the most important judicial decision of that Watergate moment was the United States versus Nixon when the Supreme Court ordered the president to turn over the Watergate case. And that's about executive power directly. The president asserted an unqualified privilege. He said, I do not have to comply with the congressional subpoena to turn over these documents. And the Supreme Court said, yes, you do. And that's exactly what's happening in the 21st century. You see Congress attempting to investigate, and the executive branch just asserting this robust, incredibly broad privilege to say, you cannot judge what we do. It's not something that is within your constitutional powers. Text of the Constitution be damned. And unfortunately, the, the key difference between the Watergate moment and right now is that it's going to be much more difficult for us to rely upon the courts to side with Congress given the way that it's been populated, and I'm referring in particular to the United States, with what I call executive
0: branch loyalists. Interesting. You then um, turn in the book to a discussion of the challenges to the measures uh, that uh, were um, deployed by the Bush administration to to illustrate, uh, in a sense, to contrast... The, the congressional and judicial responses to assertions of, ex, of you know, uh, greater executive power. Um, do you want to tell us about the difference, because this, uh, because the difference between these responses supports uh, your your position that um, we can't be as optimistic, for example, as Ackerman is.
1: Yes, and if I can just note in passing, uh, this is also something that distinguishes me quite a bit from a number of, uh, of commentators who would say that. There was a restoration during the Obama administration yes. of the basic constitutional norms. Um, so, for instance, you see people like Harold Koh uh, coming in and, and justifying the behavior uh, and the constitutionality and legality of the Obama administration's supervision of the drone strike program or the invasion of Libya, et cetera. But just to turn to your question more directly, um, there is a key problem. Congress and the courts, during the immediate years and the aftermath of 9-11, when the United States is at war, first in Afghanistan and Iraq, and in the mind of the public, fighting the people who were responsible for 9-11. I did mention, I think in passing in my book, that most Americans, unfortunately, believe that Saddam Hussein and the government of Iraq were involved in the planning and the execution of 9-11 against all authority, primarily because the American media didn't challenge President Bush's um, Sub rosa connection; these kind of very ambiguous statements that he and Vice President Cheney made about the Iraqi sponsorship of terrorism—something which goes on today. For instance, last weekend you saw President Trump talk about um, Iran's sponsorship of terrorism while speaking in all places, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia.
0: Yeah,
1: Orwell would be spinning his grape. Watching yeah. that, um, but so it's, it's so difficult for both branches of government to stand up against the president. And one of the reasons why I detailed the fraught relationship between the French and the government during earlier crises was to say, well, look, uh, President Roosevelt did the same thing. It's just that the war ended. You know, the moment at which someone could say, I'm a war president. If you're against me, you're with the enemy, effectively. Something that Roosevelt did say to the Supreme Court when German saboteurs were being tried by military courts in the United States, including German-American saboteurs, uh, so Congress was so reticent to stand up during that initial aftermath, and then the question became more complicated when it seemed as if that had wound down. So with, um of course, neither the Afghan war nor the Iraq war have really ended, they've just morphed into something else, but the massive deployment of American troops is now being downplayed in the American media with the drawdowns um both in, those, in both of those theaters. So why wasn't Congress stepping up? And likewise, why wasn't the court responding positively to these challenges? And that led me to yeah. um, two distinct areas. Analyzing why Congress doesn't respond more forcefully to executive supremacy requires um, consideration of the mechanics of congressional elections and the selection of legislatures, uh, legislators and the judicial selection process, which is very opaque. Yes. It's something that we need to look to. To explain why there's been this remarkable kid bluffs approach to very shocking and novel assertions of executive impunity from constitutional laws.
0: But so, at the conclusion of your uh, your review, or the thrust of your review of the um, many of the congressional measures and um, and uh, many of the kind of seminal post 9 uh, 11 war on terror cases from the United States Supreme Court, you make the claim that. Effective oversight is no longer possible. Um, that the 20, I'm, I'm quoting from the book, that the 21st century crisis of the rule of law is not temporary, as was the case in the Nixon administration. So, so can you expand on that? Why do you think that the position taken by both, uh, Congress and the courts in this, uh, in this period has, uh, will likely have a more lasting effect than, um, than would otherwise have been the case?
1: I think that to make the argument, I had to talk about how the rule of law is tied up inextricably with separation of powers. So the rule of law, the idea that every political actor has legal accountability is instantiated into the American constitution via the separation of powers. And the idea that each branch will be checked by the other two branches of government. And so the framers, I guess, memorialized in the the Federalist Papers, talked about how the American president was the most dangerous political actor. He must be constrained by both Congress and the courts. The problem is, if Congress and the courts are effectively being chosen and responsible to the president, how can that separation of powers actually work in practice? So when we're talking about Congress, there's been a dramatic shift since the 1970s, since that moment when congressional uh, committees Subpoenaed the Watergate tapes, passed the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon. Um, there, these people were representing local political communities and were responsive to local political concerns. And to run for Congress wasn't something that required $10 million. And running for the Senate did not require $100 million or more. And the question is where does that money come from? And does that create a system? in which the same people and the same processes are responsible for the selection of the president and the selection of Congress to the point where Congress is going to be very careful not to step on the toes of the American president. So I've talked a lot about um, campaign finances, Buckley versus Vallejo, and the kind of line of cases that come from there, where the Supreme Court has essentially said that corporations are people, they have free speech rights. It's unproblematic for them to inject billions of dollars of soft money into the, the, the campaign process in various ways, and this has been some of the people have detailed elsewhere, the creation of secret facts, etc. But fundamentally, we're talking about a system in which, in the 1970s, when President Nixon was ramping up the war in China by invading Cambodia, et etc., legislators were responding to people who were talking about how their children were being drafted and sent off to war. And now, of course, America has a special military. But there is an economic drop. You have to ask yourself why the members of Congress aren't responding in the same way. Why aren't they demanding presidential accountability when they deploy for American forces in such large number of voters. And well, it's, it's now seemingly the case that election and retention of legislators has much more to do with their capabilities of securing large campaign finance contributions rather than responding to the issues of their constituents, So, congressional popularity has never been lower. It's, when you see the figures, they're shocking. When you see that Congress has a favorability rate of 14%, you ask yourself, how is this even possible? Uh, Interestingly enough, Congress was never more popular uh, as when it impeached Nixon, or when it passed the Articles of Impeachment against President Nixon. So, if that's the path to popularity, holding the president responsible, asking the tough questions that constituents want Congress to ask of the president, doing that kind of oversight, exposing wrongdoing. If that's what makes Congress popular, why isn't it being done? Well, it's because anyone who does that is going to have that spigot of campaign finances turned off. And I I realize this is also very well-tilled ground, but the relevant uh, phrase to use is the military-industrial complex. War is America's most profitable industry. And that's not just the defense contracting and things of that nature. If you look at the American dollar and how it's managed in the scope of this global financial crisis, which America catalyzed with the collapse of its housing market, why the American dollar is the flight to safety in a way that allows for effective subsidization of American industries across the board, not just in the fire sector, but even in what's left of America's manufacturing sector. You know, um, this is now part and parcel of how America succeeds in the world, is by being a military superpower. And and congressional legislators who buck this, and there are some examples, people who I pointed to in the book as being skeptical of, for instance, the Patriot Act, or the authorization for the use of military force. In 2001 and 2003, they're gone. They're no longer in Congress for the most part. And a very, very different dynamic with respect to judiciary. And I'm not sure if you wanted me to touch on this before I return to the general thrust of your comments about um, the, the, this, this crisis being essentially perpetual. Is it okay if I
0: Yes, up with yeah.
1: and then return to that? Well, if you look at uh, Watergate, when the public saw the Supreme Court rebuking the president, that was Nixon's death knell. Because people that the public trusted, the Supreme Court still has a higher favorability rating than either Congress or the presidency. Um, it signaled that something was very wrong. And in the context of the war on terror, we've seen the Supreme Court only get involved at the margins. So these leading Supreme Court cases that many people think were very strong groups of the executive really weren't. Um, what are, what, it's remarkable. Now with Trump, we see that they have been a little more robust. But that's only when President Trump has said explicitly, I am sovereign. You cannot check me. So for instance, you look at the briefs that were filed in the Muslim travel ban legislation, President Trump makes these extremist arguments. He hasn't learned how to make the arguments in the way that um, over the course of the war on terror the lawyers in the department of justice under president obama learned to make them which come in the form of well yes we do have some accountability in some circumstances it would be proper for you to exercise oversight and to tell us that what we're doing is constitutional suspect but this is not that case and the supreme court has been very uh, keen on accepting that argument they've always left at it when it's presented because it provides this easy out where they don't have to risk their own popularity they don't have to make very hard decisions about whether or not um, it's acceptable for the president to do things they just find this path of least resistance of saying well maybe at the margins there have to be some changes but if congress authorizes this it's fine which was the thrust of most of the um, terror legislation between 2001 and 2016. The Supreme Court of the United States saying Well, if this had a congressional authorization, it would be fine, which signals to Congress that if the two political branches decide that the president should have this power, if they will delegate this, regardless of whether or not that delegation is constitutional, that Supreme Court will not get involved. And to answer that question, why that's going on, it's a very complicated question about how members of the Supreme Court and others very powerful appellate courts in the United States are selected. Uh, A fascinating window was opened with the Gorsuch nomination and approval. Um, Also something that the Garland nomination, I think, shed some light on as well. Um, But it seems that the Supreme Court of the United States is not going to be in the vanguard of the charge against the President when he acts in a constitutional manner. And What we need instead is uh, a very broad-based popular movement, because we're in a situation unlike Watergate, where the two branches of government that are charged constitutionally with checking executive power have absolutely no real appetite for doing so. They will do so in a very cosmetic manner when they're forced to do so, when it appears that the president's open disrespect for them means that they might be reduced to abject political uh, uh, unimportance. But other than that, they're not going to get involved at all. So in terms of a Watergate-like moment where the charge is led by the other branches of the government, it's very difficult to see how that would work politically. And so when we talk about Ackerman's optimism, Um, it's very hard to see it. Um, I I I, I very much like to check in with him and see um, whether or not he uh, maintains that optimism after the moment for reintegrating the rule of law into the American Constitution during the Obama administration was squandered.
0: To be fair to Ackerman, though, um, uh, just uh, uh, if anyone's sort of uh, well-schooled in his uh, in his uh, position, um, I mean, he, uh, there's a great deal of pessimism in the Decline and Fall um, book. Uh, I think it, it, when, when I uh, Put to you that uh, you you contrasted your position with his on the basis of an op- of his optimism compared to yours. Um, I think what we mean here is that he was optimistic that it was possible to turn things around, but yes. that the argument in his work is that you know if things are to continue, uh, you know it's it's not looking good. So um, I think he would share a great deal of, of the pessimism. I just want to return to, to to Trump. So the the bulk of the writing for this book was done. Before the um, the 2016 election, so one question on readers' minds might be, well, you know, how, how does this apply to uh, to Trump, and how does the Trump uh, presidency change or not your argument? So I, I take it from the on the basis of the conversation we're having here that your position is that. We have not yet seen um, anything close to the kind of damage that could be done or the expansion, the continued expansion of power um, under Trump because so far the exercise of executive authority that um, that he's attempted has been somewhat clumsy, um, lacking in sophistication, uh, mostly theater and so forth. But that if there were an attack, for example, in the United States, if there was a uh you know if there was a flare up again of something that could be directly connected to the uh, to the earlier war on terror something that would give him a plausible uh, uh would make plausible the claim that you know the war is back on and we've got to defend the homeland and so forth we would likely see a continued expansion or even uh you know as hard as it is to imagine an unprecedented exercise of unchecked authority uh and that uh the case law and the congressional measures from the last decade would, would all be used as a basis for you know, a continuation.
1: It's a frightening prospect, but I think it's one that we have to face. Trump, unfortunately, is a very quick study. So one of the most horrifying moments of the past year for me was to watch the criticism of President Trump suddenly fade away when he had his Presidential moment. And that presidential moment was when he decided to bomb the government of Syria. So he made the executive decision without any input whatsoever from Congress, that the Syrian government, which just put this in passing, is the most effective military opposition to ISIS for that. He decided to degrade the capability of that government and its military uh, on the basis of Allegations that had yet to be investigated by the United Nations. And when he did so, all of the criticism of his domestic policies just seemingly didn't exist. And instead saw people in CNN, in other media outlets, every op-ed page across every newspaper in the United States talking about how presidential he was. That's a very dangerous lesson to teach the President of the United States. Because what he learns is when he is a war president, he can't be criticized. And that's something that he'll learn, whether or not he creates a new war externally. And he says everyone has to rally behind me, as was the case during the Iraq war, or whether or not there's a major terrorist attack inside the United States. So something which horrified me today, uh, we're speaking shortly after the um, lethal terrorist bombing in Manchester, um, a music concert that killed upwards of 23 people. Um, How people in the United Kingdom which is a country that endured the blitz, uh, are calling for uh, a state of emergency and the mass internment of Muslims. And a a state of emergency exists in France after the Charlie Hebdo bombings, which has been continued indefinitely. There's no real end to it in sight, although it hasn't been abused in quite the same way as it has in other countries. What would that look like in the United States? Uh, It would look a lot more, I think, like the violations of human rights that occurred during the Second World War, combined with the the technologies and techniques of what had been developed in the war on terror. And as you say, all of these precedents would be mobilized. It was shocking to me during the Bush administration to see Department of Justice lawyers stand up and cite precedent from the American Civil War, some of which had actually been overturned, at least impliedly. It was disturbing to see precedent from the americans from you know, the second world war um which were so problematic um being decided in favor of war on terror policies these precedents never go away and we never saw a clear rejection of any of these you can go back and look very carefully Judicial opinions that were purportedly the high watermark of the supreme court checking the presidency in, in 2008 for instance And they're not what they initially appear to be. They are very measured and they are very tailored. It's very easy to make an argument that those holdings can be confined to their own facts. And especially in an environment where there is considerable pressure on the courts not to be uh, against the president, uh, to be with him rather than against him. And at a time in which one of the key architects of all of these policies, executive supremacy, of the violation of non rights, has been appointed to a seat on that bench. Now I'm referring to Neil Gorsuch. His paper trail is uh, it's unspeakable. And to see him as a potential ally for the Trump presidency uh, on the highest court of the land is uh, a very dangerous harbinger of the things to come I right think.
0: So Ryan, um, usually uh, on the New Books Network, the uh, last question uh, pertains to where the uh, where your work is uh, now headed, um, kind of what uh, what the book has um, positioned you to uh, to turn to next. Do you want to tell us about your current current work?
1: I'd love to. Um, so I left the United States and returned to a law school in Canada because I thought that I couldn't do any more um, work on this topic in the United States for various reasons. Um, it's very politically sensitive. Uh, where I was teaching, it probably would have um, promoted calls for my dismissal. And it's just hard to get traction with it because it's so difficult to get people to, <laughs> to to look directly into the sun and just be seared by how difficult it's going to be to reconstruct the rule of law in the United States. So. <laughs> Uh, i've decided that i 've done what I can with the American Constitution order, and i 've turned to the key the Constitution order, so I was very heartened to see uh, and I was very skeptical about this possibility but i was I was happy to be proven wrong. The um, Parliamentary committee, the House of Commons current standing committee on national Security and Public Safety, finally did propose amendments to legislation that we commonly refer to as bill c fifty one And I saw myself cited twice in that report. I saw that too. Uh, I was, I was impressed. (laughs) I was, I was shocked. I was flabbergasted. Um, and I think that more work needs to be done, but it's amazing to see parliamentarians in Canada responding to the arguments, not just of myself, but of many other civil libertarians and the B.C. civil rights, um, lawyers associations across the country, et cetera, um, saying there's a real problem with this, that we should worry about how this legislation would be misused in a future emergency. And so that's very heartening for my current project. Um, actually, what I'm trying to do right now is to reconstruct the um, foundations of the rule of law in Canada. And that jurisprudence is very complicated, and I'm trying to put it back into historical context. So for getting lawyers who are listening to this podcast, um, the, the touchstone for me is going to be the provincial judge's reference and to look at what uh, then Chief Justice Lemaire said about the rule of law and its historical foundations and use that as a way to provide this whole historical context that sheds light on these vital, unwritten constitutional principles. Very much like you know the, the, the role that Magna Carta should play in the United States when people make a bill of a danger clause or targeted killing, making that clear to the Court of Canada in advance so that when people have to make arguments that well know, there is, in fact, a, a, a way that charter rights could be overridden pursuant to Section 33 or Section 1. But there may be rights that cannot be overridden in that manner that exist through the preamble of the 1867 Act and the connection that it provides to the unwritten constitutional principles of the Constitution of the United
0: Ryan, let me just ask, uh, let me kind of go in the opposite direction and ask you about your thoughts uh, on the rule of law worldwide. So, once again, the argument in permanent state of emergency is that the United States uh, is no longer a rule of law state, that we can, to begin with, we can articulate a kind of global standard of the rule of law and that, in various respects, the, the United States um, no longer meets this standard. Um, you had hinted a moment ago that uh, France uh, has, for various reasons, also uh, departed from this. Uh, the United Kingdom is now going to be in jeopardy of further departures and so on. What thoughts do you have on the kind of global state of the rule of law?
1: What I find heartening is that the legal profession globally still remains a believer in the concept of the rule of law and of using it as a way to criticize the degeneration of domestic constitutional laws. So that you can look at lawyers in Turkey, for instance, um, which is now further than ever from the rule of law paradigm after the emergency decrees by its president. You can see them using that language. You can see lawyers even in places like France, which really don't have an organic connection to the concept of the rule of law. There's a, really, there's a really difficult relationship between civil law tradition and rule of law. But nevertheless, they use that language. They use it as, as a, a rallying cry for the, at, at least the restoration of what rights they had previously under their domestic laws. And that makes me feel quite good. Uh, I am very worried about what would happen if the United States um, is a role model for those countries, and I think it absolutely is. Look at President Trump's remarks on, uh, on Brexit, and you see this mutual admiration society between he and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. If the United Kingdom were to disavow the European Commission of Human Rights, that would be a big blow. But at the same time, I think it might catalyze some resistance. So I, I don't want to be unremittingly pessimistic. I do think there is the popularity of popular resistance, and I think that lawyers can play a very important role. In catalyzing that popular resistance by saying that there is a clear standard, we can use the rule of law as a way of showing that something has gone drastically wrong with the anti-terror policies and the quasi-states of emergencies that are created pursuant to them.
0: Well, Ryan, with that, perhaps we should—I um, should thank you and um, urge readers to to pick up *Permanent State of Emergency: Unchecked Executive Power and the Demise of the Rule of Law* out in uh, 2017 with McGill-Queens University Press. It's a fantastic read. I should have uh, said earlier that it's just beautifully written, um, and, and it's a pleasure to read. As disturbing as the, uh, the story is, um, it's, uh, it's got so much uh, to, uh, to tell the reader, um, and, uh, and I really appreciated the chance to read it and, and to speak with you today.
1: Thank you so much, Robert.